Good morning, afternoon, or evening to our INE team that's out there. Thank you so very much for tuning in to today's INE Live session. My name, as always, is Neil Bridges, Chief Content Officer with INE, and thank you for joining me today. This is a very special one for us as we close out uh, Security Awareness Month. We are doing a nice little AMA between myself and uh, Director of Cybersecurity Content, Jack Reedy. For those who are not aware of what an AMA is, let's just make sure that we're all aware. AMA is short for Ask Me Anything. And you've got two great cybersecurity experts, Jack and myself here on stream. We love to answer questions. It's something that we, we thoroughly do and love the interaction that we get from the community whenever we sit down and ask questions. So when we talk about asking questions, if you've got questions about cybersecurity, if you've got questions about uh, you know, INE as a company, if you got questions about the direction, the strategy, the content, literally ask me anything. The anything part of that is, is very, very crucial. And so drop your questions in chat. Remember to hit that cue at the very, very beginning of it so that we can pick up your questions really, really quickly and get to them. Just a couple of quick house cleaning items or housekeeping items uh, as we do this INE Live. We do have moderators in chat. Um, I do want to thank my moderators each and every time we stream at INE Live. They're, they're dedicated to the cause. So, so thank you so very much to, to the moderator team at INE who's out there keeping chat free and, and keeping things organized in chat. So thank you very much for that. With that, Jack, um, I do see we've got a couple questions kind of coming in really quick. But first off, I think you put together a quick little game that you wanted to kind of talk through really quick first, right? I did. I did. Good to see you again, Neil. Great to be here, guys. Um, and yeah, we've had, I would say we're coming to the end of a pretty successful um, Cybersecurity Awareness Month. You know, we've been on a lot of talks, interviews, panels, engaging with you guys. Uh, I, I've been on a podcast. You know, it's all month we've just been working at it. And so I thought that today, with Halloween coming around the corner and we're kind of signing off towards the very tail end of, you know, one of our busier months this season that we're going to do something called, if you don't mind, uh, trick or treat is what I've named it. And basically I'm going to start a statement, see how you relate to it with either answering trick if it's false or treat if it's true. Now these are statements that you'll find all throughout, you know, news, media, either common misconceptions or things that you heard that might not be believable. So I just want to get your take on a couple of these because I know. Is this is this Stump the Chump? Are you gonna play Stump the Chump with me here a little bit? I mean, no, no. There's not there's not too many technical questions on there, but Oh, oh, okay. All right. What you got for it? What you got for it, Jack? Okay, so remember, trick if it's not true, treat if it is true. Okay. We've never experienced a cyber attack, so our security posture must be strong enough. Oh, that's definitely a trick. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that that is absolutely one of the biggest misconceptions out there, right? Is is um, there is this misconception that if you've never been part of a cybersecurity attack, then you clearly must not be vulnerable. You must not be a target. You therefore must not have to do anything with your cybersecurity posture whatsoever. Um, and that is just categorically untrue. Um, I think that what you have to remember is that hackers are very much targets of opportunity. And just because they haven't pointed their lasers at you right now doesn't mean that they won't point their lasers at you at some point in time in the future. Um, you know, you know, it is a, it is a matter of you know whether at some point in time you just happen to kind of come into that ear. And what I'll follow on to that, Jack. You didn't ask this question, but you know what people oftentimes hear that is like, oh well, then if I just keep a low profile, if I just like stay below the radar, if I just you know, don't draw any attention to myself, then I'll never be a target for hack attacks at all. And that is also categorically not true. I think we have a statement, um, if you've 
if anybody's heard of this in cybersecurity, one of the, the best statements that we have is that security through obscurity is not security whatsoever. And so flying below the radar and trying to pretend that you're invisible to hackers just is not a strategy for a secure you know, enterprise whatsoever. Well, to that point, number two on here is cyber attacks can affect everyone regardless of business, business size. Absolutely. That's so. So, trick fits false. Treat if it's true. That's a treat. That's a treat. Yes, absolutely. That is that is definitively a treat for that one. Um, you know, everybody from SMB, small to medium businesses, to nonprofits, to Fortune, you know, Fortune 100 companies are all targets of opportunity for cyber attacks. Um, listen, you know, most most hackers, you know, especially when we look at like the commodity malware, the cyber criminal organizations, and things like that. Um, they kind of go out there, you know, you know, unabashedly targeting everybody, looking for any opportunity they can to exploit any vulnerability on any system whatsoever. And so while we may think that they're, you know, spending a lot of time saying, I'm going to target organization X or I'm going to target organization Y, while that does happen occasionally, um, a lot of it is spray and pray and, and see what, what they can get when it comes to, to those types of cyber attacks. So uh, it does not matter what your size is. Yeah, I'll even jump on that one and even say that, you know, there are underground companies that what they'll do is they will scan as much architecture as they can see and they'll create preemptive lists. So if a zero day falls and they happen, they already know what software vulnerabilities are out there and exposed to the web. Absolutely. So that way they, they can already compromise and, you know, collectively get there before it can be patched. So, so yeah, I, I think, think that, you know, I agree with you on that one pretty yeah. fully. So real quick, before we get to your next list of trick-or-treats, because this is actually a pretty fun game. I actually like this quite a yeah. bit. But we do have quite a lot of questions coming in from chat. And you know how I Excellent. am with making sure that we make sure our audience gets questions answered. So I'm going to ask you one from chat, Jack, and let you okay. piggyback on this one, because I know that you are incredibly passionate about the colors. You've done a fantastic video on this before, and you've talked about this before. And so I'm going to let you answer this one. It looks like we've got a question come in from LinkedIn that said, Sir, what's the difference between red team, blue team, and a pen tester? Jack, take it away. Ah, yes, I saw, I saw this and I started answering it and then I realized, yeah, yep. Um, so red, red team, blue team, pen test. So generally you'll find pen testing within the red team itself. Red team representing the attack capability as in threat emulation. So the authorized attacks for the purpose of learning and knowledge, right? Then you'll have blue uh, being a blue team, you know, defensive operations, any form of cybersecurity. Um, having said that, then you also have uh, the yellow team, which is engineering. Now, you generally won't hear about that one very often. You'll, that'll, that's more IT. Um, and then with all the colors together, any in between is usually job roles. There can be positions in larger uh, economies. Most frequently you'll hear about is purple team, the combination of red and blue, where you utilize red team skills to correlate and improve blue. What a lot of times people don't talk about, though, is using blue team skills to improve red and make sure that they're better attackers and better because if you both you know improve all together then the ship raises right so so real quick jack just because like we, we see this question very frequently right and everybody loves the red team side it's been glorified across movies years and years and years you know you know in the past all the way back to to the 80s with the movie hackers um why is that and why do you think that we don't see as many people gravitating towards some of the other colored jobs that we have inside of uh, uh inside the or inside the, the industry Short answer, Hollywood. <laughs> That's uh, legitimately, I mean, you have movies called Hackers, you have movie, you know, Swordfish, you have all sorts of, go I mean, war games even. You know, mm -hmm. you even back, all the way back in the 80s, you have 
so many representations because there's this mindset or skill set that looks and don't get me wrong it's extremely enticing of being able to be act like the bad guy but instead you're doing it for good i mean i've even seen ones about banks and you know security security checks and physical penetration tests on banks being done and you know it just it is for the longest age being able to again the the uh, cloak and dagger the double the the uh, double agent if you will all of that but being able to have an authorization letter that says you can do this um realistically and while I, don't get me wrong i'm also not hating on the red team i absolutely love them they they represent a small subset of the entirety of the organization and posture um and real and also realistically when you're a defender you just get so many attacks in a day it would be hard to be enticing there is a couple movies about it that one day i'll actually put together a less uh list of <laughs> defender movies right um but yeah, it's. I, I think it's extremely glamorized because it's very, very, uh, if you will, enticing to, to play the bad guy every once in a while. Absolutely, absolutely. And what I, what I can definitively say, right, just from my own, when I see this question, um, I, I I love this question a lot, and and I, you know, and think Jack can appreciate this too. Jack and I have come from very similar backgrounds, right? We spent a lot of time, you know, in military cyber doing doing cybersecurity for the military. Um, it is very fun to do the red side, but then you get out there and you start to experience what it's like to actually defend an organization, or what it's actually like to hunt for a bad guy in an organization, and you realize that that hunting, that hunting for that adversary gets kind of fun gets kind of fun. So um, with that, I want to move on to the next question. We've got a couple more questions in chat that I want to hit. Um, there is a question from, from, from Sochi, and it looks like there's another question um, on LinkedIn from Michael. Um, they're kind of similar questions, so I'm going to kind of lump them together. It talks about a timeline for integration of Pentester Labs and INE training. Um, I'll go ahead and take that one, uh, Jack, on that one. Um, I, I think that what you're going to start to see is in the short term, um, I can tell you literally as of today, we were having meetings talking about um, some of the next labs that we were going to start to build on the Pentester Academy architecture, but not just related to cybersecurity. We're looking to integrate the, you know, that same technology and that same innovation that Pentester Academy has kind of brought to the, the INE family, um, specifically across cloud, specifically across networking. If you've been a traditional INE networking client, you know you're familiar with things like rack rentals, um, you're probably familiar with a tool like GNS3, um, but you're typically familiar with having to run those types of labs and scenarios locally or by doing any of the type of rack rentals that INE has. We're in the midst of actually trying to virtualize all of that inside of the Pentester Academy um, you know, platform so that we can actually give you the ability to do those labs in a more ubiquitous, a more center um, uh, type of approach when it comes to, to doing that instead of having to have your own equipment, have your own instance of GNS3, you know, things like that. On the cloud side, the team is working fervorously um, um, you know, now that we've started to make a lot of investment in on the cloud side to bring a lot of that lab uh, content that you've seen through the beta programs uh, into the PTA architecture as well and really build out a lot of those, uh, those hands-on uh, lab pieces into that as well. And then Jack, do you want to kind of talk about maybe some of the future of some of the cybersecurity uh, integration work that, that you and the team at Penn District Academy have already started to look at? Yeah, absolutely. So we are definitely looking at um, improving and utilizing what has um you know what what the resource that we have now i should say and with that um i can tell you that we've got some stuff coming down the pipeline really interesting a lot of content where we're building we're planning and we have uh 
been working hand in hand with Vivek's team to make sure that it all comes to a realization. Um, again, timelines, no details yet, but uh, soon. Keep an eye on the, the uh, socials. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, next question from chat looks like uh, looks like we've got uh, one of our residential uh, uh, regulars here for Sochi. Uh, says, what was the cyber secret Vivek couldn't talk about yet? Still not yet for Sochi. Still not yet. But I got one for you, Jack. I got one for you. This one's coming right from uh, John Cole over on LinkedIn. Says, good afternoon. I currently work on the help desk. What would you suggest as the best, best path to becoming a security architect? Security architects. So with that, you're going to talk about engineering. You're going to you're already doing the first step, which is great. Help desk. Uh, I would step up to either some type of administrator role if you have a capability. Preferably, if you could be an, an administrator of security architecture, really gets you into understanding the different protocols, different ports, different you know the communication pathways as well as the storage requirements and things from a technical perspective. And then you would typically progress upwards through either uh, management, so information security management, or an information security engineer role, which will give you more of the hands-on and the project management skills, as well as the combination of IT as well as operations, because you always want to be in line with business operations. And then once you get enough of ex experience, you'll uh, and you'll be able to claim the title of architect eventually, where you're helping the CISO directly out with, you know, the business goals and needs, as, you know, also keeping funding in mind while you're at it. I think I think I'd add on to that too. Like security architecture is is also a critical, important role, especially in today's modern cybersecurity infrastructure. We see terms being thrown around all the time, like zero trust. Uh, which, if most of you have seen, you know my live stream, you know that I'm a I'm a huge fan of zero trust. Um, technology is coming out, you know, on a, on a pretty regular basis uh, as well. And so that security architect role is really critical in helping to, to, to kind of debunk a lot of those myths and really kind of look across the organization to um, make the best possible, you know, technology and strategic decisions and make that advice known to not just the CISO, the Chief, Secu Chief Information Security Officer of an organization, but also to the, the CIO, the Chief Information Officer, you know, you're the CTO, the Chief Technology Officer, or those Vice Presidents of Digital Innovation. And so, um, um, you know, another one of those exciting roles inside of cybersecurity is definitely that security architecture role and just the role that you have in playing and in, in securing, you know, you know, everything across the enterprise. Um, Absolutely. So, so we got another one. Jack, I'll let you kind of start off with this one as well. Um, this one came in from YouTube from Joe Zach says, is blockchain a viable option to change the way of how digital certificates work? Ooh, very good one. I guess it is stump the chump this uh, this time. <laughs> I would actually say, I I would agree. Though I will be honest and say that I've not studied too deeply into that topic. It's uh, still cursory for me. So I'm going to actually bounce that back over to Neil. That's okay. I I am not. I, I think that blockchain as a whole, as and let, let's make sure that we're we're level setting on the conversation of blockchain, right? Oftentimes people confuse blockchain and crypto, right? And when they think crypto, they think you know Bitcoin, Monero. You know, you know, Zcash, all the different coins and, and all coins, Shibu, Doge for those who are out there, you know, the, the, the holders of the, the, the underdog coins. Um, you know, what, what I would say is that that's not what we're talking about. When we're talking about blockchain, we're talking about that ability to have, um, you know, that level of transparency and integrity 
um, in those forms of record keeping. And when you look at the investment that even financial organizations are attempting to make into blockchain research, it has not been very predominant. Um, as, as a matter of fact, and you know, I'll look to Chad or Jack to, to keep me honest on this, I think the only major financial institution uh, to make a significant investment in a blockchain was HSBC a couple years ago where they dedicated a $50 million uh, investment to trying to figure out how they implement blockchain uh, in their ledgers uh, to see if it would work. And we haven't heard anything come out of the, the, the research that HSBC has done or any implementation that's done in there. And so do I think that blockchain will be a viable option at some point in time in the future? Absolutely, 100%. The amount of times that I've been asked by CISOs and cybersecurity professionals, you know, how do we use blockchain for things like identity and access management, certificate management, things like that. I think that there's a, an army of folks out there looking to determine, you know, the viability of blockchain to help us in the security world. I don't think that we've matured enough in that direction yet to really see a broad adoption of that. Go ahead, uh, that's a, a lot better a lot better than what my answer would have been <laughs> <laughs> um Fasochi says is career paths from INE still on track I'm gonna say yes and I know that Jack is Jack literally just presented something to me the other day around the cybersecurity career pass Jack without giving too much away do you want to talk about kind of your vision for cybersecurity career pass and kind of share what that looks like with the folks uh, without giving too much away I will do my best um, the legitimately yes hard at work, should be on target, don't see anything that would keep us. Um, I was just in meetings earlier today about it, and yeah, ideally, it's as we described during INE Live, which is you'll be able to take a look at a specific role, you'll be take, able to take a look at um, exactly what courses will get you to, towards that role, even some career outlooks possibly, or um, but at least definitely the, the descriptions, the skill sets, and the courses that'll help get you there. Um, a lot of work is being put into this, a lot of planning, you know, so it's just going to be, it's one of those things that's just going to be a constant work and improvement. Once it drops, I just want to make sure this is clear, once it drops, it's not version, like, that's not end-all be-all and, oh, it's here. It's something that we intend on sticking to and continuously improving and making sure that we get a lot of value out of it for you. I think that's a fantastic point, Jack, and I think it's important to understand that your career ever changes, whether it's a cybersecurity career, whether it's a cloud career, whether it's a networking career, dev, doesn't matter. You know, the, the industry changes around us, the technology changes around us, the demands on your career change around us uh, um, constantly. And so while we are planning on having the first iterations of career paths across cloud, network, cybersecurity, um, data science done, you know, still on track to be done this year, um, understand that that is a first version of that and that that will be a living and existing, you know, capability inside the platform. Uh, that will continue to monitor data. We plan on this being a very data-driven approach to CareerPass, where we're gathering a ton of career data, salary information, job requirements, you know, job titles, things like that from out in the industry. We've got a massive data analytics engine that we haven't talked too much about, um, but we're investing heavily in terms of making you know, all of INE a very data-driven company, where we're putting a lot of that data analytics and a lot of that uh, um, you know, kind of the, the, the magic that has come from that analysis into some of the decisions that Jack is talking about for cybersecurity that we plan on applying across uh, across all the verticals. And so, you know, I know that's a little bit of a longer answer. The short answer to that is yes, absolutely. Um, understand that that you know, there's a 
when you see this thing, when you see, and we've, we've looked at some of the initial um, kind of drawings, I know we've seen some of them during Redefine, we've seen those evolve over the last you know, few months of design and development. Um, it's gonna be something that's gonna be transformative, not just now when it gets released, but as you continue to progress in your career. Um, Jack, this one's over to you. Uh, this one actually came in from Twitch. This one came in and said, um, uh, who is more likely to get attacked, an enterprise or a single individual not related to getting a foothold in an organization? I would say an, an enterprise, but that's usually due to surface area. So you have to you know, think of and imagine what is touching the open internet. And when you link up to an ISP level individual, um, you you have a couple protections, not not a lot, right? Like, but your your router is not just sitting on the backbone of the entire internet for somebody to ping and get into your home network. It uh, it basically breaks out into a pretty complicated scheme. The point being, though, is that with exception, I would definitely say more likely an enterprise network. And again, with exception, I hold in reserve because of, I mean, it you can say. I mean, ask Brian Krebs, how many times has he been attacked as an individual? <laughs> like, you, you can become a target very quickly. I think, that, I think that gets back to the point that you made earlier, right, which is it's about your attack surface, right? And if you look at, you know, an individual's attack surface, if you look at a company's attack surface, um, you know, I think that that is really the determination of the likelihood of a potential attack happening. Um, I was part of an organization years and years and years ago um, you know, where, you know, even though we were a Fortune 100 company, we saw a lot of the senior executive leadership, the CFO, the CEO, the CIO, get attacked more than the company did because them as an individual person, um, their attack surface was almost as much as a, as a Fortune 100 company. And so I think that, you know, what I would reframe that question, uh, No Name Fox, is, you know, the, the organization that's likely to get attacked is the organization that has the most exposed external attack surface. Jack, I don't know if you'd agree or disagree with that one. Uh, I would 100% agree with that. And I'll tell you that one of the, so of course, uh, you know, I've done some executive services before previously. And one of the first things that I always say to C-level executives is do not speak of the attackers. Do not, do not speak of them. Do not poke them. Do not, you know, bring your ego to the table when, and don't refer to them because it is much more likely to annoy and all of a sudden you have a target on your back when it comes to that type of stuff too. So whether or not you have a surface area, you'll find out how big that surface area is if you antagonize the wrong group. Good point, good point. Uh, we're gonna move on to the next question. Looks like the next question that we've got lined up and, and this is a good one, I love this one. So oftentimes um, we, we get inundated with this technical mindset when it comes to anything IT related, right? Whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's cloud. I know Brooks is, uh, Brooks Seahorn, who's one of our, our, our AWS instructors, he's a huge fan of talking about this next type of question, Jack, so you'll truly appreciate it. Because it's something that all of us who have been in this industry for a while realize that it's not just about those technical hands-on skills. And so uh, coming in from YouTube from Ravenwing says, what business skills would be critical to learn to get projects funded and considered? Jack? Uh, core is business operations. What makes money and what's the important valuables that are within your company from a digital perspective? Start there. If you just start there, you understand how the company earns, you know, you know, earns money, as well as what data or technology or processes are key to that, um, and what would hurt or harm the company. 
in some major way if it was to be either taken offline, uh, released to the public, you know, intellectual property, or if it was in some way, shape, or form compromised or, you know, uh, again, released or stolen. Once you understand that and you can align your projects to improving that, especially if you can outline quantifiable metrics, that's that's what I really wish I knew uh, coming out of the military and understood. I would have gotten a bit further. I, I think that that quantifying metrics is really really key there, and and I know that there's a there's a three word uh, you know you know statement that 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 those of us who who have who've been in this industry for a while you know we love to hate you know the idea of creating a return on investment whenever you're talking <laughs> about these business skills. I would learn to when you talk about what business skills would be critical. Learn to speak business. Learn to be able to speak in return on investments. Um, you may not like it, and I know that every practitioner and every technologist that's out there right now is cringing as we have this conversation because nobody loves it. But if the board of directors or if the CISO or the CIO or whoever gives you a million dollars to go deploy the latest you know, endpoint detection response, to go stand up a penetration testing program, to you know, go implement an anti-phishing solution, they're going to want to know what did they get for that $1 million investment. And you may not like it, but that is business and that is reality. And so being able to understand what is important to the business, to be able to, to speak in terms of return on investment, um, to be able to understand what financially drives the organization and to be able to talk about how you know, either your, your, you know, you know, the CICD pipeline can help, whether you're talking about, you know, a, a multi-cloud environment in, in Azure and, and AWS, whether you're talking about implementing some type of control that reduces the cost of your AWS environment, whether you're talking about standing up a vulnerability management, you know, type of program, being able to talk to what that cost investment looks like and being able to speak to it from a business need perspective that will 100% get your projects funded. Um, and if your projects don't get funded, then it's on you for not having communicated that appropriately to the stakeholders. And you go back to the whiteboard. I could tell a story. Um, remember the first time that I tried to pitch uh, SOAR, security orchestration and automation um, uh, and response tools uh, to, uh, to the CISO. Um, I had already been very successful in implementing a, a, a $10 million Splunk environment, a, a $50 million security operations program. Um, asking for $3 million for a SOAR tool should have been incredibly easy to do. And you know, I walked in there very cocky, not really respecting the process, not really respecting you know, what the CISO or what the CIO cared about, and I got shot down the first time. Um, you know, it, it, it's something that you know, no matter how successful you are, you have to respect that process and you have to put forth the best effort to do it. Yeah, I fully, I, I fully agree with that. I think it's, um, you know, one of the things that I learned coming up was it's not just setting up a server. There's always somebody there that has to take care of it, right? And just that type of investment when it comes to personnel, management, time management, what seems like only an hour or two to you does eventually equate to somebody being paid out. So it's, uh, you know, it's maintenance fees, it's costs, it's upkeep, it's, there's a lot that goes into it. Absolutely. I'll move on to the next question. Uh, this one's coming in from YouTube. Says, um, "Would you consider reverse engineering an important skill for modern pen testers?" I'm going to go first on that one, and I'm going to say, "No, not important." Would you need to know it? Should you need to know it? It's probably not bad, but I wouldn't say important. Jack, your take on that? 
I would agree. Um, I'm not going to say that it's a complete, you know, I'm not going to say that, no, just don't ever, whatever. If it, you know, if it drives you, excellent. You'd be able to take some malware, reverse engineer it, understand it, and implement some of the stuff into your own, you know, back pocket. But realistically, I mean, even as a instant responder, it's such a niche skill that I I personally, I'll do, dyna I'll do dynamic malware analysis, but I, uh, I intentionally stepped away from that that uh targeted knowledge whenever i started getting into x86 and he oh no nope i'm good at processor i'm not i'm i want to deal with that <laughs> yeah i think i think i think pen testing when you talk about you know what a modern pen tester needs right i think that the that you know even today's modern pen testers the skill set can be so so wide and so varying mm -hmm. you know when you talk about everything from web app everything to network based everything to social engineering even phone you know phone social engineering is still a thing um, you know, physical security, right? All that stuff, like, you know, you know, somebody who specializes in any of the social engineering type of pen testing approaches, you know, reverse engineering malware isn't necessarily their bread and butter that comes out there. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, I think that, that to say modern pen testers is actually to limit the scope of what skills are needed for most modern pen testers out there. Um, and, and, why, and I think that that's why I came to the conclusion that I did that, no, it's not important. Is it another tool in the toolbox? that's how I would equate it to. Yeah, I think more so, I think it would be more important to somebody that's a red team tool developer. Mm -hmm. I could see that being much more uh, useful uh, having known a couple of my time. Let me ask you this though, just as a follow on to that uh -huh. thought process and follow on that question, one thing that, that Bart or anybody else listening that may not have thought of, with the predominance of some of the open source C2 frameworks, so folks who are listening who are like, what the heck just came out of Neil's mouth? Um, C2 Framework, Command and Control, there's been a huge initiative by C2 Matrix to really try to categorize and index a lot of the um, publicly available um, you know, Command and Control frameworks that are out there, Empire, um, you know, there's a C-sharp framework, things like that. Um, Jack, my question to you as a follow-on to that one, do you think that that diminishes the need for understanding that malware reverse engineering process with the predominance of a lot of the open source work that's being done in some of those C2 frameworks? Um. I wouldn't say diminishes. No, it when when you're talking about specialization, you know, there's always work to be done, and be it for the individual red team, where you can you know use those frameworks to actually build your C two out, versus actually creating it or adding on to it yourself. Um, I think that. While it has gotten a little bit easier with the research, the open availability of research to create our, you know, create tools or just ingest stuff that already exists, there's still plenty of work. Mm. There's, I mean, you still have a need for tool set development and everything else because if it's out in the public and it's out in the open, there's a blue team member who has it as well, who knows it as well. That's right? a good point. That's a fantastic point. Fantastic point. Um, Moving on to this one, this one's actually going to be very pointed at you, Jack. I think you're probably the best one. This comes from Brian, uh, Brian Godfrey over on YouTube. He says, will INE bring in a pathway for DIFFR or Digital Forensics and Incident Response? you want to speak to that one? Because I know you got some exciting sure. things that you're working on on that one. <laughs> yeah, um, we actually already, we have a bit of a pathway already with the uh, learning paths, uh, digital forensics, threat hunting, uh, incident response, or all certifications we have through eLearn Security. Um, will it be coagulated and make a little bit more sense coming soon? Yeah. Oh, you're gonna, you're gonna keep it kind of ambiguous with that one. You're gonna keep it. Yeah, of course. I haven't <laughs> talked to marketing yet. <laughs> um, 
It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. I, 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 one of the things that I think, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm, again, I can't say enough that I'm glad to see more people ask about digital forensics and incident response. Um, you know, we've made, you know, a, you know, a great amount of strides to bring in a lot of experts. I want to give a huge shout out to, um, to a lot of our blue team experts. Um, you know, Chris Leach, Dr. Chris Leach um, does some fantastic work, um, you know, you know, out in that area, and he works very closely with the government on a lot of good, a lot of awesome projects, and he's a recent. Um, you know, PhD, you know, um, you know, candidate as well. And so I'm super, super proud to have him on the team. Jason Alvarado um, is an amazing resource. He's done a lot of work, um, you know, in the, in the blue team space and the digital forensic incident response space. And our newest, our newest blue team instructor, Brian Olaf as well. Um, I think when you look at the combination of, of all the, the experience that these three blue team instructors like, really bring to the table, um, the next version of our incident handling response course threat hunting course, digital forensics courses, and then a lot of the, the additional blue team courses that, that I know Jack wants, is chomping at the bit to, to get out the door as well, you're gonna see a lot of, uh, a lot of great transformation in that space on the, uh, on the differ side. Um, got another one coming in, Jack. I wanna send this one over to you as well. How long does it normally take for a SOC analyst one to move through the ranks? surprisingly quick mm -hmm. you would you would be now it depends on your propensity for the, the work you know and how passionate you are and how quick you learn it took me six months to go from sock one to sock two mm. i've seen others that went even faster sometimes i've seen people that get hired on for digital forensics roles that have to sit sock one just for six months so that way they understand the basics of the business operations before they work in other roles so it, it is highly dependent on yourself for how much you want to retain, learn, and, you know, move. Um, I think a, reali a realistic goal would be within a six months to two years, depending on how finite or gatekeepy your sock is, I will say. Because some, I've also heard of some that have technical skill sets that tests that you have to pass uh, for internal promotion, things like that. So again large variance there um but i'll say six months to two years if independent same when it goes from SOC 2 to SOC 3 if you want to be somebody that's in customer service SOC 3 usually comes with about four to six years worth of experience because you're considered an expert at those operations as well as the more advanced type of uh investigations what i'm gonna what i'm gonna say i'm gonna piggyback onto what jack says outside of the time constraints um i'm not a I'm not necessarily one to, to bound anybody to any particular type of time constraints, but I think that every SOC analyst, especially SOC analyst one, isn't ready to move until they've dealt with their first cybersecurity incident. And I'm talking, mm -hmm. you know, and, and all hands on deck, you've got the, the CISO and the CIO that are in the trenches with you trying to work through things, legal is involved. I think that that, that is kind of a feather in the hat that, that I think every SOC analyst one needs to have um, from a practical perspective, being able to work in that type of environment, being able to see what chaos um, in some of these large organizations looks like when you're dealing with a ransomware incident or you know, a, a phishing incident that has spread rapidly throughout an, an organization. Um, I think you'll, you'll find a, 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 you know, a, a new importance to a lot of the work that you're doing in a SOC once you've been part of that, uh, that, that incident response process. But maybe that's, the, uh, maybe that's a little bit of the mass assist in me. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. At least something significant enough or a significant enough vulnerability that you have to start searching for it because it happens every 
four to six months, I'd say, where you'd get, you know, a zero day that drops or a company that's hacked that's part of your supply chain or X, Y, and Z. And, you know, it's all hands on deck. And what you say is important in the way you say it is important. And that needs to be a lesson that's learned. Um, you know, you don't use the word breach at all until legal approves it. <laughs> That's a very good point, Jack. That is a very good point. Um, we got one coming in. I'll let you start this one off, Jack, because I'm not entirely sure how to answer this one. Um, mm. This one comes in from YouTube, says, what are the biggest unsolved security problems of 2021? Is there such kind of vulnerabilities? Yeah, I would say basic compliance. We're still having trouble with that. Getting, <laughs> getting companies to just get onto MFA is still a thing that exists. Um, now, I, I will say that there's been a massive uptick. I think I read recently that there's been like 74% more job postings for cybersecurity roles in the last year alone. Um, so there's a combination there, but I think that companies are having trouble still to this day with the politics of making sure cybersecurity is important enough to shut down specific operations if they suspect any form of compromise. Absolutely. And, and, and to put a finer point on that, just to kind of piggyback on, on what Jack says, like, like I know that this question was asked, and again, we get to thinking about vulnerabilities and we start thinking about, you know, you know, WannaCry level vulnerabilities, MS0867, right, you know, um, you know, Eternal Blue, right, things like that. You, believe it or not, something as simple as enabling multi-factor authentication or MFA is still a vulnerability that a lot of organizations, for whatever crazy reason that you can believe, still struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis. I've been part of um, two Fortune 100 companies uh, in, in my past, you know, that I've worked with directly that have taken two years after a significant cybersecurity incident to successfully implement multi-factor authentication. And so this term of vulnerabilities can take a, a multitude of, of, of shapes and forms, um, you know, when you ask that, that question. And so I want to make sure that, that I couldn't agree with, with Jack, you know, enough on this one is that the, the common hygiene about things such as passwords and multi-factor authentication, patching your vulnerabilities, reducing your attack surface, those have nothing to do with the latest zero day. They have nothing to do with the latest technology like AI or blockchain or anything like that. It just has everything to do with basic security hygiene. Yeah, personally, I, um, I believe that if you have an instant response team or an instant response functionality, they should be able to lock out any account as needed to stop, to stop any type of attack. Now, I understand that there's service accounts. There's a whole bunch of technical stuff to that. But as a generalized rule, you'll see that your, your uh, potential for loss significantly you know, decreases whenever you enable your um, instant response team to actually respond for once. Yeah, absolutely. Um, got one coming in from our friends overseas. Jack, you'll appreciate this oh, nice. one coming in from overseas. Uh, this one's coming from European. There's, uh, uh, this is from Philippe on LinkedIn. Says, I am a European student interested in cyber. Um, is there a recommendation you will give me on how to get into the field? And then they follow up with, thank you for doing this stream and being here for the people. Thank you for tuning in from my side. Jack, you wanna answer this one? Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, definitely. So some of the uh, similar things that I always say when trying to get a job into cybersecurity, play around with the free stuff, take a look at what's available, um, labs, tuning into stuff like this really helps. Identify what it is you want to do. And I, I don't mean that, you know, you don't have to be, I want to be a CISO, I want to be an architect. Start with, I think I might want to be a penetration tester. I might want to be going into SOC level one, you know, in an instant response analyst role, or you might want to be an inf uh, information security manager. 
choose choose one of the primary fields once you start there then you'll start seeing a better path for okay i i you know if i want to be an information security manager i need to understand in your case gdpr or others um other you know local regulations towards your country uh, if I wanted to be instant response, I would go for these certifications, start understanding Linux and Windows systems host base really well, and start you know using Wireshark, tear apart packets, um, Metasploit. If I want to be a penetration tester, you know these are the things that you can start self studying on using free skills, and then stepping to us when you pick and choose exactly what you want to do. Come come say hi. Even still, we have the PTS. Come do that. Absolutely. Excellent opportunity there. Absolutely. Um... Bert over on LinkedIn says, any tips for pen testers who want to increase the quality of the reports? I'm going to chime in on this one first. Um, reports is something that I am incredibly, incredibly passionate about. The, the amount of times that I've, I've seen other pen tester uh, reports that have just been horrible. Um, you know, they, they either end up becoming a, a, a dump of a vulnerability scan engine like Nessus or, you know, Nexpose or, or anything like that. It has been too, too often in my career, and it's something that I'm... I'm incredibly frustrated that we don't focus in on the reports. And, and so I, I see the question like this, and, and just for those who look at this question are like, reports, who cares about that? I want you to understand something, that as a penetration tester, nobody cares about anything else that you do on that penetration test until that report is in their hand. And so the report is what your deliverable is. It's not whether you hacked a machine. It's not whether you got domain admin. It's not even whether you stole the PCI data because nobody cares until you write that penetration test report. And so reporting is probably one of the most critical skills that a penetration tester could happen, but yet is the one that we spend the least amount of time as an industry helping other penetration testers understand how to do good reports. And so thank you so very, very much for asking this question. And, and for those who are thinking about how to improve their pen test reports, it shows an amazing amount of um, self-awareness that you know that you need to increase those penetration testing reports. What I would say to quality, this is definitively where it comes down to that business understanding, back to the question that was asked earlier. If you hack a box, you really need to have a self-look, you know, you know, self-assessment of yourself to say, does, does that box really matter in the enterprise? Does that box actually have any business value? Did you actually use that box to pivot to something that had, you know, data that could result in a regulatory type fine for that organization? And then how do you capture that business value as you write that report? And I think that that's, that's the biggest thing that I would encourage everybody to focus in on who's, who's looking at this and trying to figure out how to increase their report quality is to think about if you do something as part of a penetration test and if you feel it's important enough to report on it, what is the value of that to a business organization, either monetarily, regulatory, um, you know, any of those types of, of compliance things. Jack, I don't know if you want to chime in on that one at all or not. No, I mean, you pretty much hit all the wickets. The only thing I will suggest is from an actual form, like hands-on format perspective, start with the big picture item right up front, executive summary. First page should be able to be read by a C-level executive, and they should understand exactly what happened. The next couple pages should always be some form of the strategy, so that way the directors or business man managers, they'll get into you know a bit of the weeds next couple pages. The tail end should be all the technical data that the technician is going to read through to actually fix and put hands on. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I think that that's a fantastic point. Make sure that you're, you're capturing those audiences. Um, Jack, uh, this one came in from YouTube. I want to flip this one over to you. Um, 
what methods could be used to help bring awareness and importance of having a security-centric culture and mindset in an organization? Ooh, that one's good. So I've heard of a couple different um, and, and experienced a couple different methods. Uh, one, obviously, security awareness training, phishing simulations. Those are great. But I've also experienced uh, some recent ones. Some companies are doing things like, uh, uh, what do you call them, um, lock rooms or, or escape rooms. They're doing uh, kind of virtual escape rooms where you have to show that you understand the basics of security, not click on the bad stuff, as well as point out which is the uh, phishing email, some other uh, <laughs> couple things, not to completely um, you know, share their secrets and stuff that I experienced. But point being is, I think step one is get excited about it. Make sure that everybody understands that it is important, that it is worthwhile and meaningful to engage. And step two is, you know, really put it into a perspective and understanding. You can't just say, oh, we can lose up to millions of dollars just by you clicking on a link. It, I've seen examples where they put them hands on the keyboard, showed them how easy it was to you know, hack a Windows XP box. And all of a sudden the user was just talking about it for months and really serious about it and engaged because they didn't realize how easy it was to compromise a system. You know, there's multiple ways and methods. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's, that's the key point right there, right, is you make it, you make it, I, I hate to say this because you know, it sends cringes to, to a lot of cybersecurity professionals, right? But you take some of the magic away from what it is that we do, right? You demystify you know, what, it, what it takes to hack a box, right? What it takes to send a phishing email, you know, how that process works, and you bring them along. Um, once they realize just how easy it is, it really starts to open their eyes you know, on, on, on that type of thing. I think that you also make a really good point when you talk about making it relatable. Um, I've been part of a lot of you know, social, you know, security awareness you know, initiatives for a lot of different companies in the past. I've seen everything from giving them Amazon gift cards to Starbucks cards. Um, one of the things that I think is starting to become more effective is this idea of um, you know, if you're protecting yourself at home, then you're protecting the organization. And so we're, we're starting to see a lot of that security awareness bring, being brought in to say, how do you protect your home life? How do you protect your bank accounts at home? How do you protect your own social media accounts? Because once you learn those practices at home, um, it becomes really easy to take those practices and bring them over into the workplace and really create that culture of, uh, um, you know, of awareness and importance inside of an organization. Um, and again, we get back to our favorite statement, right, which is the return on investment, right? They need to understand that if they put that multi-factor authentication on their, their bank, um, what is that return on investment for taking that small little initiative to add multi-factor authentication? Last question, Jack. Um, we're coming up to the top of the hour. Let's see if we can find one more really good question to get in here. Here's a good one. I'll, this one, I'll send this one over to you. This is a cybersecurity content one, Jack, for you. Um, what's a good path for blue team analysts offered through INE? Any courses, any courses uh, platform specific? So I would take a look at uh, our, so network defense is one of our um, certifications as well as CIR, so instant response. There are more than a couple learning paths in there as well. Um, even PTS, again, I know it sounds weird. Why am I you know, saying, take a look at the red team stuff if I'm trying to do blue team, but through understanding the attacker, you actually will become a better defender. You understand what the processes are, what the thought processes are, and you're able to put yourself in their shoes, which helped me anticipate where to look for logs whenever I was actually trying to find people. Absolutely, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that last statement. 
a good defender understands how the attacker attacks for sure. Um, I know we have a lot of questions, Jack, um, still in chat that we did not get to. As you can see on the bottom of both Jack and mine screen, you can see our Twitter handles there. Would encourage you, if you're not already doing that, to please go ahead and follow Jack and I. I can assure you that Jack and I will be more than happy to continue to answer questions. Um, if you if you want to tag us in stuff on uh, on the social medias, if you want to send us direct messages, I'm going to volunteer Jack for this. Um, you know, I, I fully believe that our instructors should be very, very engaged with the community, which is why I encourage you to go over to community.ine.com as well and post your questions up in there. Um, we love Love to answer questions as you can tell. We've sat here and done it uh, mercilessly for the last 50 minutes. It's something that Jack and I are incredibly passionate about. Jack, would you like to send some final words off to the audience? You know, um, I think that I've really enjoyed this month, guys. Yeah, all in all, the Cybersecurity Awareness Month has been great because I've been able to interact in so many different ways. Um, I appreciate you all's time. I really do hope that I was, as always, value added to the conversation. Um, and I'm really looking forward to engaging you get with you guys more and more as we as this uh, grows together. Awesome, fantastic message, Jack. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, thank you all, everybody, for joining me for yet another awesome INE Live. Don't forget to tune in on Tuesday for another Tech Tuesday on INE Live at the regularly scheduled broadcast. I think that does close us out for Security Awareness Month. So uh, hopefully, everybody is much more security aware. Take those trainings and learnings off to your organization and listen. I appreciate every single one of you. Interact with us over on uh, community.ine.com. You know, hit us up on the social medias. Y'all have a fantastic day.